On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group talks to Jay Davidson. What's up? Joe, nice on. to meet you. Tom, nice to meet you. Very nice to meet Very you, nice Jay. To meet you, Jay. Thanks. Thanks for coming along. Lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this special episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory and Tom Corcoran as we welcome session player, uh, producer, arranger, and solo artist Jay Davidson. All right, so. Welcome, gentlemen, to the Palaver. Jay, thank you so much for joining tonight. We are very privileged to be joined by Jay Davidson. This is a man, self-described, or at least described on his webpage, which I'm going to assume is self-described, as a, a session band player, a producer, arranger, and a solo artist. And Jay's bio freaking blew my mind. It, I, I, I don't even know that we have time in Palaverland to go through it all, but let me let me just hit some highlights here. So we have um, Cinderella, G-Love and Special Sauce, Bon Jovi, Whitney Houston, um, Steve Winwood, Joan Osborne, and one of the reasons why we got him here is Britt Floyd. Something that's near and dear to my heart as a, as a Philly music boy, I saw the self-titled Bricklin release as well as uh, David Wasikinen's In the Pocket. So, Jay, welcome to the Palaver. Very glad to have you here. Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate it. How you doing, so this, Tom? How you doing, Ken? Yeah. So this is my segue. Uh, so the Philly boy that I became, uh, I went around, as soon as I got to college, spent more time uh, finding Philly musicians than I did studying. Jay, the, the, the first time we, we, we really, truly got to talk, uh, you were a session musician at Morningstar Studios, uh, on a wonderful Vanity uh, project by uh, an artist, Nick Papillo, who, who did like a meatloaf-style kind of uh, a life biography album that, that you did a lot of work on. And that, that was pretty killer to see you in action, not just on uh, horns, also on keys and some production for that. And then uh, I believe you sat in with my guitar player, Greg Davis, many times with Crosstown Traffic. Was that a gig for you every once in a while, blowing with those guys, doing different fusion gigs down at Delaware Ave? Well, I got to tell you, um, I'm going to backtrack a second. Nick actually was right out of the David Gilmore, um, Roger Waters wheelhouse as far as being a writer. I know he had mentioned the... Uh, the Pink Floyd tribute band I was with. And, and he was amazing like that. The chord progressions, a, a lot of that you know, D minor to A7 kind of thing that you hear on a Pink Floyd song. And an amazingly prolific guy who has unfortunately left us too soon. He had major health issues. And uh, it's, sorry to see him gone. Yeah, he did a bunch of records for, for a guy who never really was established on a scene, but he just wanted to make records. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and as far as, uh, Greg Davis and them go, they had a steady Monday night at a place in West Philly in the early nineties and it became Walsh's. legendary. It, yeah. Yeah. Walsh's, it was almost like they were Medisky, Martin and Wood yeah. Philly style. They had that thing going on and you couldn't F with it at all, man. It was, it was, I mean, whether it was the three of them 
them and then they bring in some singers and they bring in me and a couple other horn players. And yeah, it was a fun, it was a fun hang on Monday nights. You, you, you kind of like just X'd your calendar out vertically for those Mondays because uh, it was a blast. Absolutely. I did. I did. I spent Monday nights was not a good study night for a director huh. student. <laughs> so, yeah. So, oh. so, yeah. Yeah. And then and then uh, when I was volunteering three years in a row, at least for the the, the folk festival, I was Chris Gately's audio uh, helper. And I remember doing a lot of children's theater mixing in, in the Grove there. But you were actually a cameraman for the Philadelphia Fest in, for probably a decade or more. Right. Uh, this would have been my 25th or 26th year doing that. Uh, I started around 94, 95. And ironically, the guy who drugged me into that was an audio engineer and a graduate of Temple University's uh, radio, television and film school. It probably has a different name now. Sure. But um, in his class were a bunch of TV guys and they just said, hey, nobody's doing video. Let's Let's do it. And it was an all volunteer video crew, but it was all professionals. And my buddy was like the chief audio guy. And back then we used to, um, I'm thinking there was something we did before CD burners, but we were burning CDs, audio <laughs> CDs and giving them to the artist at the end of their performance. Unfortunately, we had to deal with the mix that was sent to us there. There's a splitter. Uh, you technical-minded yeah. people will know what I'm saying. So there's a split that comes off the house console and goes to the monitor desk and goes to what's called archives, which is just a recording of everybody's performance. And then we get a two-channel mix of it. So if it was good, then we had a good track for them. And if it wasn't, you know, <laughs> they just got what they got. Right, but right, right. eventually, I think we were able to put stuff on a thumb drive or just give them a URL where they could go check out the their, like a pre-mixed video performance. Cause exactly, we shot, yeah. we shot four cameras and I learned one week a year, 25 years in a row, I could probably go on a professional TV shoot and not really right. show my ass that much. I, I could definitely hold my own as far as panning and tilting <laughs> and one year I'm on a camera and this shows you a, and I started in when I do a folk festival when I was like 38 and, and I, I just turned 64. So one year I'm on the camera and they're like, two, you're soft. What? Two, you're soft, which means you're out of focus, which means you uh. have to focus. I'm like, no, I'm good. They go, they're like, send another, send another cameraman out of two <laughs> because uh -huh. my eyes had deteriorated to such a point. You see, I got the glasses on now. That I, I thought I was in focus, but I was way, it's way out of focus. So now I have to wear my, my readers when I'm on camera. And uh, yeah, welcome to uh, age. Welcome to old age. <laughs> it was wonderful seeing the folk fest grow. I know my, my mom had me out there to see Bo Diddley when I was a kid, but then, you know, wow. actually, actually getting to volunteer and work it and everything and meet all, use all, that, that was pretty amazing for me in my, uh, in my college years again not studying doing music but uh <laughs> it went from it went from an all volunteer operation after relatively 40 years or whatever to to they at, at some point they they started hiring crews at some point and people actually started getting paid is my understanding right yeah well i'm <laughs> um, not uh, the only crew that really took over full full uh 
fully paid was the front of house and monitor sound crew. They hired a, a crew called Klondike from Massachusetts who had done other folk festivals. Yeah, um, yeah. The guy who had done it before was a guy named Lee Jennings, and he passed away as well. But, but he was a guy who um, Thunder and Light, Thunder and Lighting was his crew. At, they were out of Delaware. Professional sound truck, professional uh, desk, everything. You know, all yeah, the kind yeah, of gear yeah. you'd see at any festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for some reason, uh, I guess they someone said, Hey, we can come in and we can streamline this and blah, blah, blah. And, and of course it's a big semi-volunteer organization with a board. So politics, they, they can either help the production or get in the way of the production. And it's a little bit of both. <laughs> well, you know, it, what are you it, it do? was, it, yeah, it was an amazing opportunity. So, so you learned video, I learned audio and, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and the, and the, and the folkies have a friggin' blast. It's a wonderful tradition around here. So, so, so that 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 that's my crazy segue. Everywhere I go in the Philly scene, there Jay is. Um, uh, yeah. Not so much anymore. <laughs> and not, not not since COVID. But see, yeah, you're stuck at home tonight, and uh, we're grateful for it because that means that we can talk to you. So our podcast caters to prog rockers. We just spent probably six months of our lives reviewing every Pink Floyd album, reading a couple books and, and doing some extraneous interviews. And, and we're having an absolute blast. Um, uh, and, and we're dying to know, um, at least I am. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what was it like going out on the road with, with, with Brit Floyd? What, what keeps an operation like that together? What, what, what are the crowds like? What are the fans like? And, and, you know, basically what did you get out of that experience with, with, with All right, you let's, know, let's, let's, let's knock off a question at a time. I'm, I'm going to start with how I even got the gig. I was, I was, I was promoting and headlining a gig at underground arts in Philadelphia, a venue on, on the Wolf building on Callow Hill street between 12th and 13th Monday nights called drunk piano. And what we would do was we would get pianists mostly and sometimes other instrumentals into a bar that was not really doing any business on a Monday night. I mean, they, and, and, and I would feed them some alcohol and then let them do their thing. But about the third song in, I would push them out of their comfort level and have them, you know, play something differently. Or I would just show up around the corner with a saxophone and like start accompanying him. Now, the other element was that we had a burlesque dancer involved in this. So she would just come out from behind a curtain. It got a little theatrical. We had professional set dressing, professional lighting. Um, and so we, we, we started getting $1,000 bar rings. And by that, it means the bar was bringing in $1,000 a night. And on Monday night, on a, a non-busy night, that could be legit, but they, they shit Candace. They just, boom, we were done. And I'm like looking for something to do. And I look online and my friend who was a background singer with Cinderella. So I'd known her since 90 also went and had the same gig with guns and roses when they were big, when they were hot, um, when, you know, Axel could sing, um, she put, Stuff on the Facebook, this social media actually got me a gig. She posted up there, Hey, I'm looking for a guy who plays sax and bass. 
And I'm like, I play bass, which was not a lie, but you know, there'd been a bass. I'm, I'm the youngest of five musicians and there'd been an upright in the house since I could reach it. And, uh, I went and took a couple lessons just to, to get my, my right hand and my left hand together and stop making fret noise and all that. And let's face it, Roger Waters' bass parts are not Jaco Pastorius's bass parts. So I was lucky in that I could go into this gig and a band like that doesn't want a sax player. They want a multi-instrumentalist. They, it's basically a utility guy. So I played sax on five songs. I played bass on six songs when they do the wall, because if you know Floyd, that's when Roger Waters grabs a mic and fronts the band. He, he's right, not right. playing bass any longer. Yeah, yeah. So I'm playing bass and it, it was actually kind of a blast because it was a challenge for me. I'm like staring at the drummer's foot because, <laughs> you know, mm. my, my time on the, I, I may have saxophone and keyboards are my main instruments. That was kind of no problem. I would, I would play organ or strings on some songs where the keyboard player was a little overburdened with all the stuff he was doing. But uh, when I got to the basement, I was so exposed because, you know, you're at the bottom there. You're filling that frequency range that everything besides you and the kick drum is like all the way up to like 150. That's you. That's mm -hmm. your, you know, maybe. And, and so they're a very interesting group in that they go out on the road and it's a very tight ship and it's, it's kind of bulletproof in so far as everything's on a track. Now it's not merely vanilla, but if a singer gets laryngitis and the show must go on, they push a fader up and there's the singer because everybody, and there was nine musicians on stage. I'm guessing the three background singers had one click. I had a click. The drummer had a click. Wow. The two guitarists had clicks and they're all different because you may sit out and, and some of those like dogs and echoes, you know, some of those big songs are long and yeah. you might not play for five, six minutes in the middle of it when it gets all ambient and broken <laughs> down. So there's a bunch of challenges there and it depends on how good you are in shape and how much of a narcoleptic you are because you could be on stage kind of nodding off and then this oh my God. click comes in click click <laughs> click and boom you better hit it man you know so wow. i i did well i mean i understood the dynamic of it but i was certainly terrified of playing the bass you know 10 shows in i felt pretty confident wow and nice and i went to the front of house guy and this this is the weirdest thing because the MD was a guy named Damian Darlington, and he's a fabulous guitarist, really top shelf guitarist. Uh, ironically, his, well, I think his favorite guitarist is Alex Lifeson from Rush. Ah. Um, but he had Gilmore down to a T. He really did. He, he didn't use the fractal pedals that a lot of the other guys use. He used the Roland V guitar to set up all those sounds. Yet, really, his guitar tech was bringing him different guitars all night. So I'm not, I'm not sure they all had that Roland V guitar uh, special um, interface. It's not like, are any of you guitarists? You know, it's not like a pickup. It's not per se. It's something I think that turns uh, 
the audio frequency into a MIDI note, and then it go, it becomes digital. And sure, yeah. But he he had it dialed in, man. He was he was the kind of guy that would like you come into you come to a sound check, and he's going, I want to adjust the delay on that on 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 the bridge of this song, and it would be something that was already like locked in, but he had been listening to the recordings and decided he had it wrong. <laughs> so he wanted to fix it because the fan base, which is something you mentioned, they want to come here, dark side of the moon, just like they heard it in 73. They want to come here animals, just like it was recorded. They don't want to hear any improvisation. They right. want me to play uh, Dick Perry solos on the saxophones. Exactly. And that's tough to do because uh, it's not the most metrically, uh, cohesive shit in the world that that, that saxophone playing and I'm, I'm more of a junior walker um earth wind and fire kind of horn guy and the british saxophone players are a little more free and creative and and it, so you know so so, so jay you made you made a reference though to to british saxophone players is that yeah. is is that a a I mean, that's a generalization that that British saxophone players in general have a, a different identity from, say, American saxophone players. I had never heard this, so this is interesting. Joe, you tell me, you 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 put up a uh, super tramp, okay? Um, you put up British saxophone ABC. You put up any of the new wave acts from the eighties, right? You you put them up against uh, Clarence Clemens. You put them up against uh, <clears throat> Junior Walker. Okay. Uh, on on a foreigner song, or even point. on his own recording. Yeah, 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 yeah. It just seems like the American stuff, and even the Australian stuff, even in excess, even uh, uh, men at work. Men at work, yeah. It's a little <laughs> more aggressive. It's a little more uh, attacking, and and the 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 British stuff just seemed more uh, genteel to me. I don't know. I, I, Britain I had a huge ska culture, right? And there were plenty of saxophones in there. And well, now thank you. Just you just ruined my argument because <laughs> those guys. Which is fine. Those guys in English beat and um, UB40, yeah, yeah, they oh. definitely played more aggressive. But I'm telling you, you put on a Fela record, Afrobeat, and you can hear the fact that the guy hadn't changed his read for six months because the oh, pitch yeah, yeah. is kind of all over the place, and it works. <laughs> right. It, it right. absolutely works in that music. Well, well for know? the prog rockers here, I, I love uh, Fela Cootie, and then his his son did a lot of stuff. Femi Cootie. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and, and this is Nigerian-based uh, Afrobeat. It's got a lot of very aggressive horn sounds that might not be pleasing to the, the classical musicians. And, and, and so, so, so you're saying you had to learn to play sweet like Dick Parry a, a little bit more on the soft side. I, the, the challenge really is taking is playing anyone's solo verbatim i would imagine it's a challenge to a guitarist or a saxophonist a keyboard player there's very few like quantized solos out there everything there's the notes there's the way they're attacked i bet you there's a bunch of people who could play jeff beck but not sound like jeff beck you know excuse me for using a guitarist example but it's the same with saxophones absolutely who is who is i thinking about um tom from a rage against the machine tom morello he said he was losing his shit when Springsteen said, yeah, I want you to come out and play guitar on my tour. And just the, the, the amount of songs he had to learn, you know, because Bruce doesn't really use a set list. He just calls something and you're expected to know it. And uh, at least that, you know, he said it was a real 
school. It was back to school. And, mm-hmm. and the prep for Brit Floyd was back to school for me because once I got done with the saxophone stuff, I had to learn the keyboard parts. I had to learn percussion parts, watching another percussionist play, which was very helpful because that wasn't nowhere was that my sure. first yeah. instrument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they even put me on acoustic guitar and that would kill my left hand because I just don't have a left hand that's oriented to a guitar neck. It's just more so, you know, the guy wow. wanted to work on my strumming more, more than my finding the right chord. And it's been a while. I mean, I haven't done that gig in three years, but, mm-hmm, I, and I was definitely a better guitar player in 2017 than I am now. <laughs> <laughs> is, is this a good segue to Steve Winwood? Because when you talk about switching between keyboards and sax, I mean, that's an incredible gig for B3 organ and sax. Well, that was right in my wheelhouse. I've, I've played Hammond organ since I was 14 and, you know, wanted to be caught the local Chester County Almond Brothers clone band called, I mean, you got to remember I was 14 in 1970. So live at Fillmore East was like, I wore out two physical vinyl copies of that record because nobody had ever heard that combination of blues, jazz, Southern rock, slide guitar. I mean, here was a guy who had just recorded. This is the house that Jack built with Aretha Franklin at Muscle Shoals, Dwayne Allman I'm talking about. And, and mm-hmm. for me at that point, I was not as much of a saxophonist as I was a keyboard player, even though I, I was studying classical saxophone. I really hadn't discovered that I wanted to be an R and B or rock or jazz saxophonist yet. But I played keyboards in a band, and uh, we hauled around an M3 in a station wagon. And, and if y'all know what an M3 is. It's Hammond's small little spinet organ. When I say small, it still weighs, it's in a big wooden cabinet, and it still weighs 200 pounds and is bulky as shit. Right, and it right. fit in the back of a 69 Mercury Monterey station wagon nice. <laughs> uh, with, a, with a crappy Leslie that I think I built. Um, don't, awesome. don't build a Leslie just thinking, okay, I'm going to put a fan and a baffle in front of a speaker. It's, it's not how it works. <laughs> a little, little bit more than that. <laughs> it, it'll, it'll vibrate itself apart. It'll, it'll literally, I, I made, I made the baffle out of styrofoam, which is way too heavy. It's, it's and or bulky or wind resistant. I mean, if you look at a Leslie, we're talking 1940 or 30 engineering but done by real mechanical engineers, real <laughs> electrical engineers, not a 14-year-old kid. So a Leslie has two motors. Actually, it's really ingenious. It's got four motors. It's got two for the upper rotor and two for the lower rotor. And when you switch between them, it's the impedance that it, it, you put the power on, on the fast motor and somehow the shaft just drops down like a, like a solenoid, like what used to start your car mm-hmm. back before digital circuitry. And it's amazing because they haven't improved that technology at all. And I, my Hammond, the one I own now, is in a studio about 20 minutes from my house. And I totally cleaned that fucker and teched it and oiled it. And it's all analog. And it's kind of refreshing. It reminds me of working on a car. Yeah. But it's a little bit more uh, rewarding to me because I don't really have that mojo to go work on 
uh, uh, V8s like I used to when uh, another part of my upbringing bringing is that I kind of lived in a in an auto shop and and my, me and my brother was definitely he tore apart a that the motor from that same station wagon and put it back, back together and we put a four yeah. barrel on it. My dad's like, what the hell did you do? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of stupid, but uh, yeah, you, you did. You didn't have to take your own organ on the road with uh, Steve. Did you? Steve has uh, an organ in the States and he has an organ in the UK and he has a house outside of Nashville and he, he has a house outside of Oxford. Uh, Gloucestershire is the name of the town. Looks like Gloucester with wow. the Shire yeah. on the end of it, but yeah, they kind of leave a couple syllables out. It's Gloucestershire. He would take that organ when we were in the States, he would take the other. They don't really ship well. But anyway, I got to play Winwood's organ, which was like, I, I, are you kidding me? I right, mean, because he's, he's playing it part of the set, right? He's coming he in plays for it three most or four. Of the set, mo- most of the set, he plays organ. And then a couple songs like, uh, High Life or Higher Love, I forget exactly what it was, but uh, and definitely uh, Can't Find My Way Home, he would switch up and play guitar, nice. and I would stop playing saxophone and walk over to organ, and he had this the drawbars preset for me, and I, I believe he had a one-speed Leslie, which is a trick you do. You unplug, the, you unplug the slow rotor, so it's either fast or off. Mm. It's something he picked up from Jack McDuff or Jimmy McGriff, one of the... Uh, one of the jazz organists that he absolutely loved, like the, from the sixties, they did that, those old organ trio things. And, and Steve was a big fan. And at soundcheck, you would think Ray Charles was singing sometimes too, because he could, he could warp his voice into something otherworldly. And he could clone a lot of different people, but it was still uniquely Steve. And the other thing I wanted to say about a guy who's, 72 years old and when i was on tour with him he was 59 i guess yeah this was 05 i can't really do the math right now um 49 and he was like 57 and he would still sing give me some lovin which is pretty effing high and i think the original was g and he did it in f sharp which is not that much lower mm-hmm. i mean it's still got really high i don't have a keyboard open here i would play you so glad you make it give me some long yeah it's like got an a a really high yeah it's high and it wasn't an issue for him at all to to hit those notes as an older guy so that was super impressive and he made a lot of room for the people on stage the guitarist myself i mean i got a 20 minute solo in low spark every night are you kidding me really 20 minutes that's amazing (laughs) well i mean Unless I was bored and playing bad shit, then, you know. That was your would, report card, right? <laughs> it's like, I don't know if you guys ever saw a roller derby. I would call off the jam. This <laughs> huh. is something from my, uh, from my youth as well. I met Steve Winwood because I did another gig. Uh, a guy in 2002 made a movie called Standing in the Shadows of Motown. It was basically a tribute to the Funk Brothers, the guys who recorded 400 number one singles. It won the Toronto Film Festival, not as the best music, as the best film. And it was a freaking documentary. And it featured, a, you know, uh, Joan Osborne and Ben Harper and uh, Bootsy Collins and a bunch of singers 
fronting the Funk Brothers. And I didn't, Ted, my partner at the time, he did the audio for the record. I got called to do the tour. And on that tour, I met Steve Winwood. And nice, nice. it was such an honor for me to, to give these 70-year-old guys at the time like a new lease on life. These guys had left the industry by and large. And here we are playing Leno. We did Leno one night. We did American Idol. And then we opened for the dead on New Year's Eve <laughs> in 0304. I mean, he, he gave these guys a second career. It did not end good. But in the middle of it, I got to meet Winwood. And nice, that nice. made another fabulous year for me. So I just wanted to give a shout out to the Funk Brothers. That's awesome. Because, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, so you were a solid year on the road with Winwood for that. Yeah, pretty much. Well, I mean, his 2005 run was in no way a solid year, but it was a spring run, a summer run, and a fall run. My God, you know, since yeah. Bernard Edwards died, Niall Rogers goes out and he does 200 dates a year. And Niall Rogers is, is 67 years old. And it's an impressive show he does because he does Chic, he does David Bowie, he does all these things he's produced. You know, and he wasn't the star on any of them, but he's got singers in place that can do all that material. And I, I haven't seen it. I So I, hey. they open for Cher. I, I would love to go see that because you know you're going to see a variety of music. And you can't really mess with that guy as far as being a pop producer. Oh, I mean, yeah. Come on. It's ridiculous. But I'm sorry. I, well, I haven't no, talked enough. Joe, Joe, is a, Joe and I are closet Duran Duran fans, and you get the uh, whole John Taylor, Bernard Edwards connection, and yep. it's just, you know, you can't deny it. Like, yeah. yeah uh, you're going to think a bunch of, you know, silly English boys invented all that stuff? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, ASX is running a great Duran Duran special right now, too. I don't know if you've seen that. No, I haven't. Are they really? It's very well done. It follows the history of the band pretty well I don't, I don't know if out. you get that if you're a cable person but it's a strange little network that does a lot of music have you guys uh i know everybody's been in the pandemic if you get a minute check out this thing called home game on netflix it's hilarious it's these sports that only exist in their little localities but they're huge okay like in in florence there's this one sport it's basically gladiators it's like handball. It's, 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 there's a net, and you, you got to get the ball in the net to score. But there's 20 guys in the front who are just beating the shit out of each other. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> like open fist open boxing. <laughs> and, and, it's, and, you know, there's, there's another sport in Kazakhstan where they – it's like polo, but instead of a ball, it's a dead goat. What? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. And then there's there's uh, angle track roller derby from Texas. So yeah, it's if you need a total break from the lunacy, I highly recommend Home Game on Netflix. <laughs> it's, uh, from from one lunacy to another. Yeah, it's uh, it's nonstop. Well, Joe's Free actually diving. in Texas. I mean, but uh, there you go. Well, I don't think he There's lets all- his kids out to do those things. Hopefully not. But no, 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 no. <laughs> and to- no. Tom Sport is avoiding forest fires. That's a good one. You know? <laughs> forest oh, fires yeah. and and earthquakes and earthquakes. That's right. Something new. <laughs> uh, what part of Cali are you in, Tom? I'm in, I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, geez. Yes. Well, best of luck with all of that. Thanks. Oh, I, Thanks. I <laughs> haven't been there since last May. I did. I did a run with the Blues Act. And we ended up at a Maui Sugar Mill in Tarzana. 
Oh, it's not far. There's a blues promoter who yeah. has like four or five venues. And what he'll do is he'll get an act and Friday you'll be in one venue. Saturday you'll be in another venue and Monday you'll be in the third venue. Right. And I'm, it's, it's, right. Go ahead. I'm actually very close to Tarzana. Actually, I'm about 15 minutes from Tarzana. So a little bit out in the burbs, if you will. Well, this is a great segue. Um, you guys are struggling and, 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 and battling it out through COVID. Tom, you can't go on set to do your boom mic jobs. And Jay, you're not getting the performing. So let's make this real real and get down to earth and, and talk about making a living during COVID. I don't know about well, Tom, but I'm... Go ahead, Tom. Go ahead. Well, actually, um, there's a little bit of a segue. I, I, I was going to ask you, uh, Jay, and that is you are in a very unique situation, Jay, where you're from Philly, um, and you somehow didn't get the the bite or the the itch to go to like the three big you know cities, Nashville, New York, or L.A. Did you ever, or um, did did you ever have that itch? And you know what what kept you in in Philly? Well, I went. I lived in L.A. for three weeks, about ninety two, ninety three, just after I got done with Cinderella, and I ran out of money, and I came home. <laughs> um, so. Great intentions, and I would still love to live in that hub because I know there was a big exodus after the earthquake 25 years ago, maybe, and a lot of the, a lot of writers moved to Nashville. I I just think that there's so many more opportunities now. I'm 90 miles from New York. I spend December working with a New York band. We do a holiday show called Holidelic. It's like if if James Brown did nothing but Christmas songs, all original Christmas songs. It's very funky. It's all the, it's fronted by a guy who sings backgrounds with Hall and Oates and Springsteen and Bon and now Bon Jovi. Um, so like he's totally a first call kind of guy, but he's also like a quadruple threat. He's like he writes great, he sings great, he's a great actor, he's a great you know, he's worked on Broadway. He's he's one of these guys that is just does everything. I, I I don't know if that's a roundabout answer, but I, I guess I had you enough. don't have to live in Brooklyn to get those gigs, is what you're saying. Well, um, I actually I actually hung and and badgered him into hiring me. Um, <laughs> you know, I was like, I love what you're doing. I think I could add something to it because it's funk, and I that's kind of if I had one genre that I was only allowed to play, it would be funk because it's just kind of where I could live as a saxophone player or a keyboard player and and be really happy it's uh nothing against prog rock i love i love prog rock but it's just <laughs> it doesn't call oh. me like like the funk does i mean right right well i i just wanted to say you can't underestimate the funk and hip-hop roots in philadelphia because i mean oh, you, no. you were part you were part of the the studio four scene uh which was financed by rough house records lauren hill the Roots, uh, uh, crisscross was even coming off of that. The Cypress goats Hills. were really big yeah, the back goats. then. Everything from the sound of Philly through Hall and Oates, through Todd Rundgren. There's so much soul and funk in our rock music here in Philly. It's cool that it still lives in bands like Swift Technique today, even though they grew up on their phones and they're young and they may not get it completely. It's still somehow in the Philly DNA. It is, and and I will say this about the about their funk. It's it was like Chili Peppers with horns. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it, right. it had that kind of thing going on, and it worked, you know, because the kids loved it. But right. I got a question for Joe, and and I should know this. Uh, my vocabulary is a little weak. 
What does palaver mean? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Palaver? So palaver. Yeah. So so a palaver actually came to us through a series of Stephen King novels uh, entitled The Dark Tower. It's it's used there, and a palaver is essentially a casual conversation about nothing. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> Which we excel at. <laughs> Which. <laughs> <laughs> So oh, we talked about a lot of things tonight. I don't know if this really qualifies for palaver, but okay. Yeah, just uh, you know, you, you have the the snappy alliteration with the prog, and it just did all kind of work. So uh, yeah, that's that's uh, that's how we got it. Oh man, nice. all right. I, I'm still deep diving in the genre. So I went all funk and hip hop and talked about Philly, but also when uh, Cinderella did Heartbreak Station, that's essentially a blues album. There's a lot of dobro in there. There's organ in there. You're playing the the, the horn in there. And uh, ironically, you know. that record was cut in a bunch of different studios. And uh, MCA or Mercury, I think they were on. You know, this is a band that has sold eight million records on their first two records. And this was before Napster and Grokster and whoever killed the recording industry. So they had a nice budget to do this third record. So we cut it. KGM, a now defunct studio. In uh, in Philadelphia and in Gladwin, Pennsylvania, yeah, uh, with, with where us, the people it, are. Ri- yeah, yeah, yeah. Kate Jim is where Operation Mindcrime was recorded. So uh, it, it's a it, it's a it's a it's very deep in our hearts because we're, we're right. in that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Very cool. Uh, Queensrag metal so, side of the yeah. No, right. keep nice. going. Keep I, going. I did not know that. Yeah, and they also and we cut it in Bearsville. Love's Got Me Doing Time in Bearsville, uh, which is the studio Todd Rundgren built it outside of Woodstock. Um, sweet, sweet. And I cut another song at a place called Studio in the Country in Bogalusa, Louisiana. Of course. Which is a, about an hour drive north of New Orleans. And uh, we did the record release party on a steamboat in New Orleans. It was hyped up. And what really killed the whole thing was that record was released the same year... Um, Nirvana, I think. Yeah, Nirvana, thank you. And I said this to a Philly DJ. I said, you know what? Grunge killed glam rock. I mean, I mean and Heartbreak you, Station is really underappreciated. I mean, that's a really solid album. And you're oh, all it's, over it that. Sounds so like, I, I, it I sounds actually like, have a lot of questions for you just on that album alone. <laughs> Tom, that record sounds like Exile on Main Street. It does. You know I mean, mean, it really it's... does. That album has has soul to it, and I mean, has staying power. I mean, I really wish they would have done more on that style. I mean, I was just listening to it today because I knew we were going to be talking to you, and I was I was really blown away. It just in, in the same way, it actually moved me back in the early '90s. Tom was is to this day Tom a Keeper. consummate performer. Yeah, he. Not only a fabulous guitar player, and he had a bunch of really sweet Les Pauls and SGs and, you know, lap steels. He had all the really cool toys, tools, toys. He, he, he also, before the band had a, like, budget to do anything, he did the pyro. He was the guy making the charges up to do the pyro. I mean, it's, this guy had the whole theatrical <laughs> element of it down. So, Tom, when you asked me about, about that record, when we reproduced Love, for instance, Love's Got Me Doing Time live, mm-hmm. uh, that was like a four-piece horn section. But in order to be theatrically correct, I played Barry Sachs on that on that live. And that's not what I played on the on the record. On the record, I played tenor sax. They had another guy play Barry. Wow. But I played his parts 
and we sampled the rest of the horn section and I played them with a Moog bass pedal. So, which is, yeah, which is like, it'd be like bomb on the barry and then on on, with my left, with my right (laughs) foot. So I had to rehearse that shit. And, 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 and unlike, um, unlike Brit Floyd, there was a click, but the click got shut off once the song started. Mm. So, you know, sometimes I'd hit bop, 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 and it would be a little out of sync. Oh, shit. <laughs> but, uh, but, but this is this is a metal band. I mean, I doubt, I, I'm wondering if it got heard in row three. <laughs> right, right, right. Or yeah, row yeah, yeah. 30, or, or in the upper deck. Uh, well, I, I mean, a, a blast of a gig, though. I mean, check this out, Tom. We, we were out, Cinderella, David Lee Roth, co-headline. There you go, He had left Van Halen. Extreme was the opener. Wow. And I I was a huge Extreme fan, not from More Than Words, right? but from a record I swear they released a year before that in the UK, or maybe even two years. I heard it when I was over there with Whitney. It was Get the Funk Out, yeah. which of course is, that's, that's me. It's a metal song with a six-piece horn section. I'm like, right. I'm in. I love this band. I don't care what else they do. Nice. But the irony was that we're playing Jones Beach in New York and all these other like amphitheaters. And the only band with a real bona fide hit that was getting airplay at that time was extreme with more than words. <laughs> it was huge in 91. Mm-hmm. It was like the biggest ballad ever in 91. And Heartbreak Station just wasn't doing that kind of muscle. And California girls was already four years old or something. You know, it was like, so David Lee Roth didn't really have a big hit. He was out there on air, but Hey, we still had pretty good numbers. We still filled those venues, uh, as, as, as it was like a shed tour with they call you do, you do amphitheaters and, and, and I can remember listening to extreme one night going, Wow, these guys are the only ones with a real radio hit right now. And radio was super important in 1991. It meant everything because. Right, right, right. I guess M- MTV meant something too. But right. uh, they, were, they were still playing music on MTV. Right, barely. But yeah. hey, well, I'd love to talk Cinderella all day. He, he invited me back. It was almost like a 30 year reunion. I was telling Ken this earlier. Yeah. I live a half mile from a venue called the Keswick Theater which is like maybe a 2,500-seat old Art Deco theater built by yeah. the same architect that built the Philadelphia Art Museum. So it's like got some some heritage as wow. a piece of architecture, but it was like the shittiest sound and venue ever because they couldn't fly the PA. You know, you got to fly a PA in a theater or the low end's going to kill you because if you ground mount the bottom end, it's going to wipe you out. And so finally they put a truss in and they could fly the PA so by the time I got there with Tom last year, I was going there to do one song. I was going to do the solo on Shelter Me. And it was just the most gracious thing he could do to invite me up to play with these guys because he told me the industry that took him in basically thumbed their nose to him when he stopped using the name Cinderella and started becoming the Tom Kiefer band. Mm. You know, it was just it was just like, Who are you? And and he's like, Well, I'm the guy that used to fill your arenas and and, and he had to, he told me, I said, I had to start basically start from square one, but he's still got a pretty rabid fan base who wants to hear him fucking rock right. because mm-hmm. 
Well, you and, know, there's there's somebody out there named uh, Roger Waters who has a similar story to that. But yeah, I, I hear the the Tom Kiefer stories, and I mean, it's a shame because I mean, uh, well, I, I was going to say that um, Heartbreak Station is such a diversion from their first two albums. I was wondering how did you get hooked up with with with, with Tom and, and Cinderella in the in the first place? That's another Philly connects because. Um... They had there. There was a couple bands on the glam scene in Philly, Britney Fox, mm-hmm. uh, um, Tangier, Cinderella. They almost all went through this club called the Empire Rock Room in, in Northeast Philly, right. which is next to a car dealership. And, you know, it's a it's a funny little room. Single level might have held a thousand people. But Cinderella was a regular there, and so were those other two acts. And Tom became good friends with Doug Gordon, the guitar player in Tangier. And uh, Tom's like, I want to put saxophone on this next record. And he's like, I got the guy for you. Next thing you know, Doug calls me and says, hey, Tom Kiefer's going to give you a call. And, you know, he wants he wants you to, like, play on his record. So it was being in the right place at the right time, hanging out on the scene networking and getting a call and being available to take the call and, and apparently getting the job done in the studio because I got asked to go on tour after the studio and I, it was a delightful tour. It really, I was, might've been the oldest guy. No, I wasn't. It was either Gary uh, Corbett, the keyboard player who also worked with Kiss and a bunch of other acts or me that were the, the oldest Man on stage, there was a background singer on stage who worked with Taylor Dane before, and she was a 39 year old grandmother, and she was awesome. She was the best. <laughs> and so she was the oldest person out there on the road. And let's see, 91, I had just turned 35. So it was like, like 34, 35 years old. And those guys were a little bit younger than me. Those guys were like 29, 20, or 30, mm-hmm. you know? So, uh, I was happy to get out of town and do a rock and roll tour. Uh, well, while you're, telling, while you're telling stories, how did you get the Whitney Houston gig? That's crazy. What what happened there? Uh, my manager was her tour accountant. Well, there you go. <laughs> I got a I got a call one year saying Whitney's thinking of replacing her sax player. I'm like, okay. I went out and learned all her music. Never happened. I got a call next year saying Whitney's uh, thinking of replacing her sax player. Uh, I went and did the audition and got the gig. And God knows there was a, a bunch of people equally, if not more qualified as I was to do that. But on all those tours I've done, I've also doubled on keyboards. There were string parts that I played for Whitney, Wait. horn section parts, but mostly I played saxophone on, sure, on sure. that tour and uh had a very bad new wave haircut did that you fine that's fine we had all that so so but nah, you went nah, international nah, you on, your, on your very first tour you, you went international you saw basically the entire globe right uh i started out touring five star totally uh coke and uh sears sponsored that tour and by sponsored i mean they paid for the tour support which i think means they paid for the trucks and the buses and the diesel and the hotel rooms and the catering. And it was basically pure profit for Whitney's camp. Mm. Um, I mean, after they paid the talent, there might've been 30 people in that entourage, maybe more because there was nine or 10 of us on four dancers, three background singers, guitar, bass, drums, keys, sax, percussion. 
and then you had a, a crew, double that for the crew, because there was carpenters, lighting people, sound wow. people, backline people. And it was a big operation. And so I went from that in, in 88 to like a van with a trailer last year. So I kind of <laughs> did it in reverse. I did it in retrograde. retrograde. And, and, you know, playing blues clubs in Omaha and Lincoln and towns with even smaller names. Oh, all right. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. So, 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 so you, you are telling real stories about your last tour and that was oh. with Nick Schneblin, right? The guitarist from K4. And that was your, yes. that, that was your last tour. Okay. So even though you had to play Omaha and sleep on floors and, and, and do it old school rough style, you also got to play Bern, Switzerland. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a very famous jazz venue there called, and I'm going to screw it up now, uh, Hotel, Jesus, I, have, I, I can't remember, but like all the expatriate jazz musicians play this venue, and they like the blues, too. And what they do is they put you up there for a week, and, you're, and, and you get a five-star dinner every night, and you do two shows every night. And that's like six nights and they give you a bus pass and you walk out the front door of this joint and you get on any bus that goes right into town. And it's a beautiful old European city, a walking city that you can walk through or you could rent a bicycle. And yeah, that, that was the highlight of, of that run because mm -hmm. although we did play buddy guys on, on March 1st, 2019, and Buddy got up and very sat cool. in. With yeah, us. very cool. You know, uh, there was a lot of gigs uh, and a lot of tip jars on those gigs because what I found out about the blues industry, fellas, at least in my uh, in my overview of it, is that sure. there's two tiers. There's the, the Samantha Fish, Buddy Guy, Joe Bonamassa, uh, Derek Trucks, and Susan right. Tedeschi tier. And all those people kind of dip into the jam band world too. They've right. all got that crowd as well. And they can all command, they can fill a theater any night of the week. Um, you know, like a three to 5,000 seat theater, no problem. So they're kind of well-oiled machines, no middle tier. Everything else is clubs um, and people like just, just like uh scratching it out for their love of the music right. because I can't see how it's financially you end up at the end of the run in the black because uh, you're burning a lot of gasoline because most of the most of the trailers towing vans are not burning diesel if you're smart and you have a sprinter that's run on a Mercedes diesel huh. then you can get 29 miles to the gallon and diesel at versus 10. Right, right, in, right. in an econo line. And that's the biggest, biggest expense for a small act like that is fuel followed by hotels. So I, well, I love the fact that I got to play blues every night and I got to play a lot of keys and I got to play a little bit of saxophone. It was, it was great musically, but, but professionally I, I couldn't do the math and figure out how not only me, but the rest of the act, and not only our act, the rest of the rest of the acts actually survived. I know, fellas, yeah. I ran into acts out there that were working their day gigs nine months a year, 
so they could go on a three-month vacation playing the blues. Um, I, I saw it firsthand. These guys who had other gigs and, you know, they were like self-employed plumbers and electricians and whatever. And they like, nope, I'm not working those months. I'm on the road playing the blues. And well, it's you are a pro musician and you've been a member of the American Federation of Musicians, SAG-AFTRA huh. and RIA, right? Right. So, so yeah. Uh, not how Rhea, are these organizations but, but doing for, for, for the actual, uh, oh, NARIS, yeah. Um, yeah. uh, National Academy of Recording Sciences. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so how are these organizations holding up, taking and beating all these years as as the labels lose their power and money, and, and the artists are vying for whatever power they have? You know, how is this shaking out out there? I, I, I when I joined the union in '76, it's because I was an extra in a film, and the film was The Seduction of Joe Tynan. It starred Alan Alda. And the debut of Meryl Streep, and oh. it, it's it's funny how how it prescient that movie was. It's about a senator who had an affair with his campaign manager, <laughs> and, and you know it's like it couldn't be like you know Gary. What was his name? Gary Hart. Yep. It, it, it was right, like right. the Gary Hart story, but twenty years before the Gary Hart. John and, Edwards. Uh, yeah, uh, pick pick your name. It could be any politician, and it was. And ironically, I didn't end up on the cutting room floor. I we were there to like be the band that played the entertainment at a banquet in the scene in the movie, and I was told you got to join the union because if you want to get paid and you want to get residuals, plus it's a union shoot, you have to be in the union. So I joined the union. My brother-in-law was in the union, um, and what I learned over the years is the AFM uh, does a very good job of taking care of people who are on television and symphonic musicians and that's where it stops they don't really go after tours like they used to if you're a weekend warrior and you play like in a, a party band like a private party band or if you play clubs that they don't really send the business agents around to collect dues so a lot of those people are not union. And I'm wondering now, as I approach my 46th year paying dues to this union, because I keep getting letters from them and they're basically apologies for what's happening to the pension fund. Mm. And I, so basically I see a union that is, is struggling to keep up with modernity, with mm. the changes, as opposed to SAG-AFTRA, which seems to me, and, and maybe you guys, if anyone's a member of any of these unions, chime in, but they seem to have their constituents back. They seem to know what their constituents are about. And you, you always see these do not work notices from SAG and AFTRA for like non-union projects. You know, I never hear, I rarely hear professional actors complaining about the health fund, which is well-financed or the pension fund, which is well-financed. So, you know, why are you in a, it's, it's like I have to wonder why I'm, I keep paying these union dues. And, uh, you know, they want to call me and get angry with me. Come on, bring it, baby. I'm ready for you. You know, not, mm -hmm. I, I'd love for AFM to right its ship, if you know what I'm saying. All right. But All right. it seems like it's tilting over in the harbor right now. So, sorry to hear that. <laughs> ah, it is what it, it is. All right. Well, oh, how about uh, National... Uh, Associated Recording Sciences, NARIS. Um, what are they up to these days? 
they still sponsoring scholarships and grants and helping kids and getting music in schools and doing their thing? I, I, they they have the philanthropy part of it down. They have the they have that part down. But you tell me uh, whether what you hear as the nominations and the winners is is you know we yeah. grew up in the seventies. We grew up listening to music that existed for music's sake only. I mean, MTV changed that. There's a video element to all music now, whether it's Childish Gambino or Beyonce or mm-hmm. Post Malone. And it's tough for a guy my age to hear the innovation coming out of the younger artists. And, and it just seems like it became more of a popularity contest to me recently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That being like said, that quite that, some time actually. <laughs> we we, we said, joke on this podcast. We gave up in 1989 when Jethro Tull beat Metallica for a Grammy. So. <laughs> oh, so it's the nostalgia police. I get it because <laughs> I don't know if maybe if I was a jazz artist, I would feel differently. Like maybe there's certain genres they really take care of. the The industry as a whole reacted to streaming poorly. Is that AFM's fault? Is that now? Harris's fault who didn't have the right lawyers in place to make sure those deals didn't go down because nobody likes Spotify, but it's here. That guy gets a lot of bad press from the music industry because he treats us as content providers, not as artists. And yeah, and then people will go, there's Tidal, there's Apple Music, there's, you were talking about Bandcamp. That, that yeah, actually, we- some of the progressive artists are exclusively band camp these days. So it's it's very strange for me to figure out how to navigate all of this and try to make a living at it. And I have been in my studio writing so much and editing music so much that I have effed up my hand big time. Wow. And it feels much better today. Good and it's not comp. from doing and and then I and then I did push-ups the wrong way because I need to get some exercise and I have this high intensity training. I call it 15 minutes of hell. It's all calisthenics. So mm-hmm. uh, it, right. at the same time, Tom, I started studying sync licensing going, Oh, this, I got, I can monetize my studio. Now I can actually make some money from my home studio. It's something I let slide because it's much easier for me to just say, Oh, you got a gig. I'll take the gig. You know, and unfortunately, I put on a tuxedo way too much. Unlike L.A., where casuals, at least when I was there, paid $125 for a three or four hour gig. You can make four times that money, three times that money in Philly doing doing those similar dates. It's not really artistry. It's entertainment. And you you do the best you can. And and I'm glad that those gigs have stopped because. Let's face it, I played uh, Wembley Stadium with Whitney Houston for Nelson Mandela's 70th birthday party. <laughs> I've, done, I've, done some, I've done some like upper level gigs and I played a New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Fest with Steve Winwood in 2005 and we did a benefit after Katrina in, at the House of Blues in, in Chicago and I uh, ran into the Roots that night who were this is way before Jimmy Fallon. They were just happened to be in town. And so we had a nice little hang. And, and you used to own Rick James' fucking mixing board. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm old enough, as maybe you fellas are, that we used to record on tape. 
Sure. And and we had a Studer A800, which was a phenomenal top shelf tape machine. I mean, you could argue might be one of the better tape machines ever made. Um, you know, people like them more than the 827 because there's less electronics and less less logic chips in them. They're, they're, they're like a halfway point between the A80 and the 827. Fabulous machine. So we had one of them. We were in a very odd time frame, fellas. The studio was open from 95 to 2000. This large room, large room, no. We were in the building with Rough House Records. Mm -hmm. There was a Neve. Uh, uh, there was an SSL with an E series computer or G series computer on an E frame. There was two euphonics. They had just come out and we had an API. We had Rick James 56 input API, um, with a rack of 1073s. Uh, so my, my partner was a total gear slut. So we had all them. We had two pull techs, two, two tube techs, uh, all the shit. We had all the cool shit. Plus, we had three ADATs. Whoa! <laughs> this was this was pen. This was when four tracks of Pro Tools was a huge undertaking, because it was in a big container. We also had four tracks of Pro Tools, so we could do multi-track sessions where we we would slave up the analog to the ADATs, and we have forty-eight. We have twenty-four tracks of ADAT. And like 26 tracks of analog. And we did a bunch of hybrid sessions like that. And uh, yeah, that was, that was a fun hang. We, we thoroughly cleaned out Mr. James' console. Because as you can imagine, there was plenty of food and party materials in it. And uh, that was a great run. We had a, we had a C12, which rarely came out of the box. We had a... Um, a bunch of uh, 87s. I rarely saw the 67. That only came out for very special people. Um, but yeah, Ted was really, really eccentric with the microphones. Uh, oh, your partner, Ted Greenberg. Yeah. Ted owned a bunch of, he went, moved to LA and owned a bunch of studios. He had, owned, had a place called Cello. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, Tom. It was in North Hollywood. In, no, in Hollywood. And then he had a place in North Hollywood partnered with another guy called Pacifica. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Where it had just another strange combination of consoles, like a Heil and a Decca and something else. Like this weird Franken console, if you will. Um, uh -huh. It was a strange, strange desk. But if you wanted a preamp, it's like, no problem. We got it. You know, you want that Heil sound? You want the Decca sound? You want the Neve sound? We got it all. You want the API sound? So I'm fortunate to have been in that era of recording because anymore, it's like people are using the preamps that are on their interface. And that's it. And I have that too. I have a couple of universal audio products. I'm talking to you, one, to you through one right now. In fact, I guess I could put some effects on my voice but the hell with that but but uh i also have a neve clone a 1073 and an la2 clone i mean hardware um because i like cutting tracks through analog gear i'm i'm not a big fan of of cut at least cutting 
through through digital gear. So mm -hmm. this is well, they, not I mean, for me. They, they still can't replicate tape saturation, although they try with a lot of the plugins. At one point, I did have a plugin that you sort of attempted to give you the, the tape saturation um, that you get with, with with analog, but I mean, nothing can can no. be tape for that. Well, the irony you just mentioned is, or nothing can beat 1073 neat preamps for that. I got a guy who's recording on one of those v VS80s, one of them little Roland standalone pieces. I don't know if you remember these sure. Roland's hard disk recorders. And unlike many of us, he can actually make great mixes on that machine because he knows the architecture of it in and out. It's a real pain in the ass to work on for me because... The display is minimal and the routing is a pain in the ass. So he takes his stuff into my buddy's studio where there's a big, large format Neve and runs everything through that and then and then re-records those tracks. Oh, and wow. That's his like, fake saturation gig. So I'm really happy for him because he still gets to do all his mixing tricks that he loves to do. And he feels like his tracks are that much fatter because they went through an analog gain stage. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you know, my hat's off to him. I, I'm probably going to take a hard disk with stems into my buddy Phil, and we're either going to put them on the SSL and see how we like that, or if it's not getting it, we're going to go to the other room because there's a Neve in the other room, and maybe just dump them onto two inch and then dump them back into Pro Tools. Uh, you know, because then you get then you get the real Studer vibe if you stick them on tape. Um, and I just want the record to sound fat. Uh, I, I call it a record. I now realize I'm not marketing a record. I'm marking individual tracks, and they're going to primarily be marketed to music supervisors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the end result is I'll also have a record out of it. And so I don't really, I'm not beholden to, oh, God, this record's got to be, I'm, I'm 64 years old. I mean, <laughs> it's, I, it's an uphill battle for me. So well, now you got to give us something for our closing credits. So you think, think fast. We need a we, we need a track. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I I dropboxed you a track. Ken. Oh, good. Oh, he's way All ahead right. of you, Ken. Look so. at that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's I, like I don't know nine thirty Eastern time. I think I dropboxed you a track. See yeah. now you're with the hip kids. You 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 got you got me linked before I'm even done talking. <laughs> you're probably on TikTok too. You're fucking me up. <laughs> oh no, I, I, I it's like I. I don't, I have an Instagram account. I don't do it. I have a Twitter account. I rarely do it. And I need to get off Facebook. It's just a abysmal waste of time. Um, <laughs> um, I, I want to start to loop this back to our general theme, the prog rock, the Pink Floyd and everything that we've been doing. And we interviewed Bill with uh, Echoes, the American Pink Floyd. And okay. it's two different distinct styles. So I, I, I'm not going to pick one, but I'm just going to try to give our Palaver audience a bit of a music education here where, um, you know, a, a, a bunch of guys uh, from Delaware who have put a lot of years into this craft of playing Pink Floyd without a click track, just knowing each other, working with each other and doing it as organically as possible, even when they've got the synced video going on. And uh -huh. and you and you bring us the situation with Brit Floyd um, using click tracks and being kind of regimented and having extra keyboard tracks and vocal tracks ready to go if they need to bring them up in the mix. That's that's yeah. an an amazing education and the and the the catalog is that 
complicated that 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 might be necessary. So, um, you know, obviously people are, are paying very good money to go see these bands and, and not not uh, not being disappointed, I guess, is is. Is, is the answer there because they're getting that Pink Floyd experience that, that they paid for. Well, Brit Floyd is a well-oiled machine and not only was the music that together, but my hat's off to the crew because they, they, they had a nine o'clock call every morning. They slept on a bus every night and you know, the, the last case got pushed into the truck and they were on the road. Could have been 2 AM. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what a almost an 18 hour call. So when they had finished setting up the lights and marked out the room and set the lights up, set the back line, set the stage, um, these guys were sleeping on cases or they were sleeping in the bus and, uh, they really worked circles around us people on the stage Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they did 90 dates in North America and 60 dates in Europe, at least every year. That's a lot of work. Um, two okay. trucks. A tr- you had some truck Canadian of... shows too, right? Did, did you? Well, uh... I said North America. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's what I meant. Yeah. They're, they, it, and the way Live Nation would book them was funny because, uh, you know, you've got your first tier acts and then you have your tribute bands. So instead of us getting the preferential treatment. No, we were in Eastern Northeastern Canada in the winter and we were in Texas in the summer. <laughs> so right. that's, that's right. backwards. We're, <laughs> we're, yeah, we're doing grand Prairie. I don't know. I can't remember the name of the venue. Um, so we're doing those venues and I can remember one time I'm also a motorcyclist who stopped riding for 30 years. But when I was 50, I rediscovered motorcycles so one year we did that venue in central like midland odessa that's where it was and the next gig is in phoenix and if y'all and legally the truck drivers can't drive more than more than so many hours they have to stop right it's the law right so we would get what's called a day room in el paso which sucks because at 10 a.m you're rustled off the bus and you have to be back on the bus at midnight what do you do? You know, and it really throws your sleep off. It's just a mess and it's El Paso and you know, no, nothing against El Paso, but there's a pool. It was, you know, it was okay. But one year I decided I'm going to stay in Midland, Odessa. I'm going to fly to Phoenix and my own expense and get a day off on a motorcycle. And it was awesome. It was the best because I just chilled out. I went all the way up to Sedona on the bike. And then all I had to do was be back in time for sound check in Phoenix the next day. It was a great experience, and uh, I really appreciate the attention to detail they put into it, into the show. And because the fans do, they they've got a legion of fans for sure. Um, right, right, right. Mm-hmm. And they're 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 like the rest of us right now. They're trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, and some some of the Aussie boy guys were recording with uh, Durga and Lorelai McBroom, and we 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 have an episode coming up the um, Black Floyd album that they contributed to <laughs> that's so, funny so, that you mentioned that because Britt floyd is basically the love child of aussie floyd right oh really right. damien damien used to work, work in aussie floyd the, the the md he was he was that guy and then one year they decided they didn't want to work and he's like i still want to work so voila Britt Brit floyd is born 
That's, that's, that's a pretty awesome. piece of history. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is the flavor, bringing you all three flavors of Floyd. That's all right. Four. <laughs> Fantastic. Nice, dude. All right. I, I really wanted to beat up on the music industry and, and streaming and, 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 and you know, all, a, a, everything. But, but you, you were very uh, congenial. So, so thank you, Jay. And, and Tom, Tom, I gave you a license to bitch, too, but you were very congenial. So, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I hope you guys are all faring well in your uh, respective uh, fields uh, throughout this whole time. But it, it, it's delightful. Thanks, buddy. To, to, it's delightful to do a podcast in quarantine. It makes our job easy. We have a lot of stationary targets. <laughs> yeah. How about, how about that? Well, All right. Jay, we, we certainly do want to thank you for, for spending the time here with us this evening. It's It's been a fascinating conversation um, covering a wide range of topics, which is, you know, very, very cool. So um, we certainly, again, appreciate your time. We, we wish you all the best. Folks can uh, can certainly find you at jdavidsonmusic.com, if I have my uh, my reference correct. You are absolutely right. And, um, and uh, apparently he is on, on Facebook and Instagram, but he apparently doesn't use them very much. <laughs> <laughs> Girl. Uh, no, unfortunately, I'm on Facebook too much. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. You know, so I... so people can, can find you there as well. And, uh, yeah, we definitely look forward to uh, putting you on the list of Friends of the Palaver and, and checking back in as uh, as time and circumstance allows in the future. Well, I'm going to release this product this year that under the name Buddha Data. Maybe it's on my website. It's B-U-D-D-A-D-A-D-D-A. Right. It's going to be some psychedelic trip hoppy funk publicly privately. Yeah, I would, I would lo love to hear that. Looking forward All to right, it. All right, man. Awesome. Good. So that'll be uh, that'll be our excuse maybe to uh, to check back in with you later, Jay. Oh, thank you, fellas. Thanks for having me on the palaver. Prague forever, y'all. <laughs> yeah. Y'all. Fantastic. Thank you, Jay. Thanks, Jay. All right. Cheers. All right. All right. Here we go. Peace out. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you. And if you have any thoughts, comments, feedback, or question about Jay or any of his myriad musical experiences, please uh, reach out to us. You can reach us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Prague Apollo or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progapala at g gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, at some point Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.